This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can analyze the Rafay family murder case. This case was featured in the first season of the Confession Tapes on Netflix. Another question here is, were Burns and Rafay, the individuals convicted of the murders, actually guilty? Just a reminder, I'm not diagnosing anybody in this video, only speculating about what could be happening in a situation like this. If you enjoy this video, please like it, subscribe to my channel, and consider supporting me on Patreon. I'll put the link to Patreon in the description for this video. So first I'll look at the timeline of the crime, and then I'll get to the question about the guilt of the convicted killers. We start here on the evening of July 12, 1994. Tariq, Sultana, and Basma Rafay are attacked in their home in Bellevue, Washington. This would be the father, mother, and sister of 18-year-old Atif Rafay, who was out with his friend that evening, Sebastian Burns, who was also 18. Both men, who lived in Canada, had been visiting the Rafay home since July 7. July 13, 1994, at 2 a.m., Sebastian Burns calls 911 and reports some sort of break-in, as he puts it, at the residence of Rafay's parents. He said there was blood all over the place, and Rafay's parents appeared to be dead. When the police arrived, they discovered Rafay's father and mother were dead, and his sister was mortally wounded. The police questioned Rafay and Burns. The pair indicated that on the evening of July 12th, they left the house at 8 p.m. They went to a restaurant, then a showing of The Lion King that started at 9.40 p.m. At the cinema, a witness remembered that Burns had reported a curtain malfunction. No one saw the pair at the theater after about 10 p.m. After seeing the movie, they went to another restaurant, and then they tried to get into a nightclub, but they arrived too late. They drove back to the restaurant to use the restroom and then returned to the Rafay residence. The pair said that when they entered the home, they discovered Rafay's mother and father, and they heard Rafay's sister moaning in her room. Rafay indicated he did not check on his sister, which struck the police as unusual. He also complained that his stereo, portable CD player, and VCR were missing. The police had a lot of questions for Rafay and Burns. They arranged for them to stay in a hotel on July 13. On July 15, the pair boarded a bus and returned to Vancouver. Rafay missed his family's funeral. The Bellevue police contacted the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, who conducted surveillance, including wiretapping phones. They obtained over 4,000 hours of recordings. They then started what is called a Mr. Big operation or technique. This is a tactic which at the time was legal in Canada but banned in the United States, whereby law enforcement officers would trick suspects into confessing by posing as organized crime figures. The operation started when an undercover officer pretended to lock his keys in his car, and he asked Burns for a ride. Burns agreed to help him and mentioned that he needed $200,000 for a movie that he and Rafay were planning about two teenage boys who were falsely accused of murder. This gave the 
undercover officer an opportunity to introduce Burns to a possible investor, who of course was another undercover officer. The officers offered criminal work to Burns. At first, he didn't seem to be too thrilled about it, like when he drove what he thought was a stolen truck to Vancouver for $200. But over time, he expressed an interest in riskier crimes, like selling drugs and being a hitman. In May 1995, in an effort to impress Burns, one of the officers made it seem like he killed somebody. During this meeting, Burns told the officer he was a suspect in the Bellevue murders, along with Raffae. Burns once again expressed his interest in murdering people for money, but would not admit that he was responsible for the Bellevue murders. In June, Burns and Raffae, along with a friend of theirs named Jimmy Miyoshi, engaged in what they believed was money laundering. So again, they're working for these undercover officers, thinking that the officers are part of organized crime. During this meeting, Burns expressed an interest in finding out what information the Bellevue police had about his possible involvement in those murders. The undercover officers made it seem like they could get information about this. During another meeting a few weeks later, an officer told Burns that the Bellevue police had a lot of evidence against him. He said Burns needed to give him more details so that he could be of assistance. In July, one of the officers made it seem as though the Bellevue police were getting ready to file charges, which of course they were not putting more pressure on Burns to disclose his involvement in the murders. The officer said that if Burns could just acknowledge his guilt, he could destroy all the evidence. He claimed to have some secret connection to the Bellevue police. Burns provided the details the officer was looking for, admitting he was a murderer. On a later date, he offered additional details. The officers arranged another meeting, this time including both Burns and Raffae. Raffae admitted to his involvement in the murders. The last meeting of this operation was in July of 1995. Here we see that Miyoshi is brought in. He admits he knew about the murders about a month in advance, but denied any involvement in the execution of that plan. Burns and Raffae were arrested in Canada, but they could not be immediately extradited to King County, Washington, because the prosecutor in Washington would not waive the potential application of the death penalty. Almost six years later, in 2001, King County provided assurance that they would not seek the death penalty, and the pair was extradited. Miyoshi was offered immunity in exchange for his testimony against Burns and Raffae. In May of 2004, Burns and Raffae were found guilty of the murders of all three victims. In October 2004, they were sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. At the time of making this video, Burns is out of appeals and Raffae has only one remaining. It appears they will spend the rest of their lives in prison. So now moving to the next question, were they guilty? Of course the answer is, I don't know, but I'll offer my thoughts on this topic. To answer this question, I'll first take a look at the factors both for and against the idea that they are guilty. I'm going to run under the assumption that the only possibilities here would be that they're both involved or neither one of them was involved. It's a package deal. So I'm kind of discounting the idea that Burns or Raffae could have been involved in this by themselves. So starting with the evidence that makes them appear guilty, we see there was motive here. The victims had insurance policies. Raffae collected some of the money and used it to buy a Ford Mustang. The pair had been in a play about a perfect murder. In the play, a baseball bat was one of the weapons. 
On the evening of July 12, 1994, they appeared to be doing things to be noticed in the different places they visited, like reporting the curtain malfunction at the movie theater. It makes it look as though they were trying to build an alibi. They wanted to make sure that people remembered they were there. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. They confessed during the Mr. Big operation. That makes them look guilty. Before this, they appeared to be enthusiastic about committing crimes. Again, Burns specifically expressed an interest in becoming a hitman. Jimmy Miyoshi said that he was told in advance about the murders. Rafay's father's blood was found in the shower, leading investigators to believe that at least one killer took a shower after the murders. It's hard to believe that a total stranger would do that. Burns' hair was found on the floor of the shower and not in the drain. So it appears that he tried to rinse the blood off, but didn't actually adequately rinse all the hair down the drain. The investigators found that the washer contained underwear from Burns and Rafay. This seemed to match the confession when Burns said that they committed the homicides wearing only underwear. It's worth noting here that there was no blood residue on the underwear. Now looking at the information against the idea that they're guilty, no physical evidence connects them to the murders other than one drop of blood on Rafay's jeans. This could have happened when Rafay discovered the bodies. A state expert on blood spatter said that there were two people in the room when Rafay's father was killed, yet the confession indicated that Burns was alone in that room when he committed homicide. At the beginning of the investigation, the pair fully cooperated with the police, even though they did not have to. They gave the police everything they asked for, including passwords to electronic devices. The pair had a pretty good alibi, Even though a worker at the movie theater said they could have snuck out, they were seen as late as about 10 o'clock, as I mentioned, 
The murders occurred at 9.50 p.m., according to witnesses who heard sounds consistent with the murder at around that time. It doesn't appear as though the pair had time to commit the murders. We see they fell for the Mr. Big method. It's hard to believe that killers smart enough to create an alibi and leave no physical evidence behind would lack the intelligence necessary to detect this obvious ploy by the RCMP. Before Burns confessed during the Mr. Big technique, he denied involvement many times. There were over 4,000 hours of audio recorded inside where they lived, their phones. It's hard to believe they wouldn't mention the murders even one time if they had committed them. After the police arrived at the scene, both were quite emotional. The police would later make it seem as though they were not, but officers at the scene said they were. So it appears as though the police were trying to rewrite the narrative. Their confession really seemed to be more about bragging than relaying accurate information. They kind of looked at each other when the officer was asking for details, like they did not want to add anything contradictory if the other person already said something. If they were guilty, they would have known the story. They would have been more assured in their responses. The police had a theory that the burglary was staged, like boxes were tipped over but the contents were not examined. I don't think this really helps or hurts Burns and Raffae. Anybody could have staged the burglary. That behavior is not exclusive to them. Alternate theories of the crime could also involve this. Even though Miyoshi said that the pair told him about the murders in advance, he was initially charged with conspiracy to commit murder and then offered immunity. It's reasonable to believe that he was willing to say anything to avoid prison or possibly even being executed. Miyoshi contacted the defense looking for help right before he testified. They told him they could not help him because he was a witness for the prosecution. That seems a little bit unusual that he would be looking for their help before testifying. The police received three independent tips that implicated other suspects. All the tips were vetted by other law enforcement agencies. One of the informants knew that a baseball bat was one of the murder weapons before the police released that information. One motive was based on the idea that Rafay's father irritated other members of his Islamic faith community. Apparently, these other members had extreme beliefs and were angry with Rafay's father. The last item here, there was a similar unsolved murder in the Bellevue, Washington area. So back to that question, were they guilty? I will look at both legal guilt and actual guilt here. They were not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, in my opinion, even though, of course, the jury found them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. There were so many reasonable doubts to choose from, it's really hard to know where to start. I think the easiest would be the coerced confession. It never should have been admitted. But we also see Mayoshi being given an incentive to testify, the lack of physical evidence, the high-quality alternate theories of the crime, and the fact that Burns and Raffae had an alibi. So that's my theory on the legal guilt. What about the actual guilt? Did they actually commit the crime? I have a feeling they did, but I'm certainly not sure. I would say maybe about a 55% chance. They seemed quite comfortable with what they believed to be a life of crime with these undercover officers. All of a sudden, Burns, for example, was okay with the idea of dealing drugs or even committing murder. Even still, I really struggled with the idea they could have committed these homicides without transferring DNA. That part really doesn't seem to make any sense. As far as personality factors, both of these individuals were described as arrogant, 
I think this hurt them in two important ways. Their arrogance made the police believe they had the right suspects, so it gave the police a little bit more incentive, and it facilitated their confession. They liked the idea of being admired. They thought it would be cool to confess to a murder. The last point I want to cover here is the use of the Mr. Big technique. Criminals often brag about crimes they committed and those they did not commit. The Mr. Big technique doesn't help law enforcement necessarily find the truth. Rather, it helps them expose this bragging behavior, which sometimes reveals the truth. The reason the judge allowed the confession at the trial was because he thought it was freely given. The pair looked comfortable when confessing. They did not appear to be afraid. He viewed it as if they just randomly confessed to anybody on the street, which of course would be admissible. I feel as though the judge was endorsing a bad act here. This type of operation is worrisome because you have law enforcement actively pretending to be criminals in order to catch somebody bragging. They are exploiting a human tendency that is not necessarily tied to actual guilt. It's tempting to simultaneously condemn a Mr. Big operation, but also consider them when trying to determine guilt. It's kind of like an unethical research experiment. Scientists aren't supposed to use the findings, but they still peek at the results. The Mr. Big technique is just one step away from throwing a suspect in a prison cell and saying, you're going to remain there unless you confess. When a suspect finally gives in and confesses, the police could say, well, you just confessed, so you might as well stay in prison. One of the lessons learned from this case, I have two here. First, confessions don't have a cumulative effect. One is bad enough. Burns made the argument that he had denied guilt many times before confessing. This is like people being surprised that they had sex 100 times using a contraceptive and did not get pregnant, but then the one time they don't use it, the result is a pregnancy. It only takes one time. Second, in a case like this, investigators will argue that they needed to do something many would consider to be unethical in order to get a conviction. I would argue that if they had done a proper investigation in the first place, perhaps they would have found the truth. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.